This evening I'd like to speak about compassion and courage. Compassion and courage. They're really the same thing. We need a lot of courage to be able to face what there is in the world, in the world around us, the world in general, and the world we live in, the immediate world we live in. We need a lot of courage to face what we see go on inside of us, especially with our practice of mindfulness. It releases and um, shows us a lot of places where it can be very scary. It can be places where we feel like it's better to close down and not see this. It can bring us to those habit patterns of closing down more and more, and, uh, or striking out at if we don't have courage. And the courage that we need is the courage of compassion, this kind of courage. From what I hear and see in the various communities that I'm connected with, and what I feel in my own experience, in my own heart, which is what really informs me the most, is that there's a growing sense of urgency to help, to do what we can, to offer our gifts, however insignificant we may feel they are. All of us, in one way or another, want to touch the world, which is increasing in speed and increasing in complexity. And I think there's something that sometimes is conscious, sometimes is unconscious, that comes to these kinds of retreats as a counteraction to the speed and complexity of the world. In order to be part of the slowing down, the seeing more clearly, the seeing the more of the simplicity of how it is, moment to moment. We want to touch the world with kindness. We really want to do that because basically we're good and we know that goodness, but it gets covered up with the speed and the complexity. So we want to touch the world with kindness. And how do we do that? It's so harsh sometimes. It's so confusing sometimes. Equally as strong and, grow, and a growing spiritual urgency for some of us, those of us who are here, is to go within, not just to help in the world, but to go within, to go deep within, and to take that time, that very precious time that we're taking here during these days, and take this space of knowing ourselves, knowing really what's going on in our hearts, not just overlaying an idea about it, but really looking. This takes a lot of courage to know our inner landscape with clarity, to touch our own hearts with gentleness and kindness. Each time we can bring a moment of simple mindfulness to whatever is going on inside, this is a moment of kindness. 
because a moment of true mindfulness doesn't have any uh, trying to cover up that moment, trying to fix it, trying to change it, trying to make it better. It's just accepting that moment of what is expressed, what is manifesting, just as it is. And all of us want that in a good way so much, to be seen for who we really are. But when we come right down to it, we know when we sit here and do our practice that we sometimes don't even see ourselves for who we really are. We want to do this because to be able to touch our own inner world with kindness, then we'll be able to touch the outer world with kindness in a genuine way. So it takes a lot of skill. It takes a lot of knowing how to balance. This is why we do the equanimity practice. It takes a lot of giving up of our attachment to result. There's so much strength that happens in this practice, in this simple practice of mindfulness. And of course, it takes a lot of compassion and courage. The courage to experience a clear view of how it actually is in our hearts as the layers are exposed bit by bit. As we get quieter, it's like our hearts are a forest pool, a still forest pool. Stiller and stiller it gets with the calm, with the concentration, with the equanimity, the tranquilizing uh, forces that I talked about the other evening in the seven factors of enlightenment. And as it gets stiller, the layers of our hearts and minds, the layers that can be painful, that can be hard to open to, are exposed and seen. The places of being caught in the pain of the body, the pain of the mind, and sometimes they're very intricately connected. Pain of the body, pain of the mind. Resentment, aversion, arrogance, attachment, doubt. We get a very clear view of all of these and how they manifest in different ways. We get a clear view of the places and conditions where there is a sense of freedom. That's why it's really important, for example, uh, as we have been pointing out in our instructions in the morning, the last mornings, to notice the places where there might be a sense of calm, a sense of concentration there. The wholesome factors of mind may be exposing themselves And also in the equanimity practice, when you come back to your own hearts and you feel a restful place that's not reacting, to really take that in, to notice that clearly. Notice where we're not being caught when there's a resting, an equanimity, a contentment, a simple okayness, devoid of reactivity. Maybe there's places of gratitude There's places of goodwill. This takes such sobering honesty and unflinching courage and a rare kind of peace and caring 
for ourselves, where the caring is truly for ourselves, knowing that how could there be peace in the world if we can't make it happen in our own hearts? We need that willingness to open. This is the, one of the courage parts of compassion, the willingness to open to the underpinnings, the inner structure of what we call this personality of self, the wholesome and the unwholesome. Or else, as I was speaking about this afternoon in the equanimity practice, we want to open, but a lot of times we just want to open to what's pleasant. It's hard to open to what's unpleasant. But if we really want to awaken to how things are, as the Buddha said, I am awake, then we have to open to it all. We have to understand how to navigate that difficult terrain of our hearts and our minds, to accept every part of it that is exposed, to accept every part of it with gentleness. Sometimes it's pretty um, difficult to bring in gentleness, too, if we're so used to being harsh with ourselves, if the habit pattern is to be judgmental, to feel guilty, and to just go into that place of confusion and doubt, it can be really hard to be gentle with ourselves. So this, too, takes courage, just to be gentle sometimes. There's a writer in the Bay Area um, by the name of Agnes Au, and she wrote something in the Shambhala Sun that has affected me uh, for quite a while. This is an article about how to practice when there is an underlaying or exposing of the patterns, the psychological, the physical tangles that are unfurled during our practice. So, quoting her, she says, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace, and in so doing, to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. The vividness of an unfiltered life. How many of us are really prepared to do that? to really open to it all, to let it be exposed, not to everyone, but to ourselves, and to be able to learn the skills that can navigate that terrain with balance and ease and careful, compassionate attention. This is what we're doing in our practice. It, it, it's not just uh, the work of a ret- in a retreat. It's really the work of an entire lifetime. So through this process, we discovered, we discover what the habitual forces of the mind and the heart are, the forces that create this inner terrain, this personality comprised of habit patterns. This is what's being exposed. These habit patterns have an effect on us, of course, and if we're not aware of them, they just get more and more in a tangled web. 
they of course have an effect on the outer world, which we become more and more sensitive about, more and more sensitive to, as we do this practice. And through this vividness, we notice the habitual forces that create peace, that create harmony and happiness inwardly on an individual level and outwardly on a social level. And it's not something that happens overnight, of course. It happens little by little, very gradually. And before you know it, you look back and you see there's been a great change five years from five years ago. I was struck one time when I heard an interview with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and the question to him was, have you seen any progress or change because of your practice? And he said, and he thought very carefully, and he said, uh, from a year ago, no progress. But I can see some progress from five years ago. And from 10 years ago, yeah, a good amount. And a lot from 20 years ago. And so that gave me a little bit of hope, you know, that I could do it too, that I just could give myself a long time. So through our practice, we learn to recognize more and more and incline more and more towards developing the wholesome patterns and nourish those wholesome patterns, like equanimity, like loving-kindness, the ones we've been practicing here. Because of this unfurling process that happens in mindfulness meditation, the habit patterns that create an ecology of unrest, distress, disharmony, and fear are all too easily noticed. It's what stands out the most. And usually when we come to a retreat, we just, you know, the, a large part of us just thinks we're, we're not doing it right, um, we're not good enough, because that's what kind of is yelling at us all the time. We do our practice so that the mind can be clear and spacious, and actually in noticing them once in a while, we have a feeling of strength just in being able to notice them. Somebody uh, reported today something that I had noticed in my own practice, and it was the first time I had heard somebody report it back to me. And it's that when mindfulness starts to reflect even the distressing things in the personality or something that's unwholesome, there's a moment of noticing that, of course, noticing the aversion or the attachment, but immediately after that, there's a moment of delight. There's a moment of just such um, pure-hearted joy to be able to notice, to be able to mi be mindful of what's going on in that moment, even if it's distressing. Now, this is what we can come to in our practice. We notice the unwholesome patterns, but we also notice the wholesome forces. Mindfulness is a deeply and strongly wholesome force. 
We can recognize the unwholesome patterns before they affect our speech and behavior. This is something that we begin to see uh, in our practice. We, we start to, um, we're speaking with somebody, for example, and we start to see an unwholesome mindset come up, a feeling of aversion or greed, uh, attachment to our point of view, for example. And then we notice that it might come out of our mouths in a way that could be hurtful, not beneficial, but hurtful to someone else. So we may notice it just as it comes and it has affected the mind, and then we refrain from speaking it out. This is a whole, the wholesome force of mindfulness taking place and compassion for ourselves and for others. So more and more we're not caught in greed or in hatred or delusion because the mind is clearer and clearer. It has the ability to relinquish or to uh, renounce what we might do to cause harm to ourselves or to others. In fact, when you look at the Dharma, in the, look at its most uh, pragmatic, pragmatic way of uh, manifesting itself in the world, when you look at the Buddha's teaching in the simplest way, the Buddha's teaching is about cultivating or nurturing a wholesome sense uh, and wholesome activities of the mind and the speech of our speech and our behavior. It's nurturing, it's inclining the mind and speech and behavior towards that all the time with uh, the different reflections that we have, the mindfulness practices, the Brahma-vihara practices, the concentration practices that we have. It's also about relinquishing or disarming what is harmful those two basic things, cultivating what creates harmony, relinquishing what leads to harm in ourselves or in others. Very basic. And from that platform, wisdom can grow. That is a place for the, the fertile ground from which wisdom can grow. Without doing those two things, relinquishing what is harmful, nurturing what is, uh, causes harmony, we don't have a great chance for wisdom to grow. And without doing this quiet inner investigation, clearly recognizing the inner landscape, we can never hope to have a truthful and beneficial effect on the outer world. Because we can't do it even in our own little inner worlds. This is why we have to work here in ourselves and why it's the key to so much. We want to touch the world with kindness and wisdom. We have to start right here in this world, inner world, we live in the most. We have to understand that granted through our practice, we may not radically change the whole world, but changing ourselves can have a big effect. It can ripple out to so many 
to our immediate family and friends, and then that ripples out. We're, we're model, we can be models for others, maybe not in every aspect of our lives, but in some aspects of our lives, we can be models of wisdom and compassion. And others uh, grow from that, and then they too are models to others. And so the rippling effect it has in the world is tremendous. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It stops them. It stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. He calls them the ultimate disarmament is the disarmament of cruelty in our own hearts. Usually compassion is thought of in terms of saving others, facing the struggles of the world out there and acting to relieve it, or in some cases, to have this intention to actually transform the world. This is true, and it's part of our responsibility as human beings to do this. But we may miss a very important first step if we don't look at ourselves first. Again, I remember in another um, connection that I had with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, there was an activist, a group of activists that he was speaking to, and he was telling this group about the strife and struggles of his country of Tibet. And one person stood up, and just with a lot of uh, anger manifesting, actually, it wasn't it was not just energy. You could see the anger that he was manifesting about the situation in uh, and around the country of Tibet. He wanted to do something. He said, I'm going to do something as, uh, right now as much as I can. I'm willing to give myself and fight for Tibet. And the Dalai Lama said, it's not time. First, you have to work on your own heart to see whether you can really come from a place of balance, to see whether from that place of deep equanimity and balance, compassion can come from there. And so it is said that what leads the way to compassion is equanimity, that equanimity allows us that clear view, because there is an absence of reactivity to whatever is happening. And that absence of reactivity doesn't mean that it's devoid of energy. It's just devoid of hatred and attachment. But there's the energy of wisdom and compassion and physical energy to do what is needed to stop what needs to be stopped to cultivate what needs to be cultivated. The first step is a tender-hearted care and wisdom to face willingly and intentionally the struggles that we see going on in this inner world. To be able to be honest with ourselves and to really accept that 
we have places inside of us that need some more clarity, more care, more tenderness. Karuna, the word we use in Pali, uh, that ancient language that the Buddha's teachings were, uh, were transcribed from. There are other languages also, including Sanskrit. Sanskrit has the word karuna also. Karuna means compassion. It's also transcribed to mean noble heart, a heart that's noble enough, that's brave enough, that's courageous enough to face whatever has to be faced, a heart that has been open to the noble truths, the truths of suffering, the cause of suffering, the possibility of the end of suffering, and the way to the end of suffering what Steve spoke about last night. A a noble heart's able to face suffering and know the skillful response to it because it's clear. It's not full of reactivity. Or it knows not to respond. At least it knows in the time period where there is some reactivity, it knows that We need to take some time first to relinquish whatever reactivities in the heart and then respond. We open to the pain of the body, the physical pain. This is one of the sufferings that we open to, illness or hunger in our own bodies, the heartaches of sadness, of fear and grief, hatred and jealousy, confusion, and doubt, arrogance, resentment, and guilt. When we begin to see the uncontrollability of the mind, how it's just going here and there on its own course, it can bring up a lot of suffering, a lot of fear. The inability to hold on to anything, pleasant or unpleasant, when the mind begins to see deeply the impermanence of it all. The struggle with the vulnerability of all of life, these are things that we all face. It takes a noble heart to open to all of these. A few years ago, a neighbor of ours was going under a lot of stress. There had been some deaths in her family. And um, I I think, just looking back, she felt, I don't know her heart, really, but just from where I was standing, I could see that there was some feeling of not really feeling protected or secure in the space that she was in. And so we share a boundary line, and we were making a road on our property, which was is perfectly legal to do. We, have, we had every right to do it. But it brought her a lot of pain because the road was in her view. And well, you know, these things happen. We have to build a road sometimes, and uh, they're in the view of other people. You just can't control the world. But 
she just felt a great deal of vulnerability and she came to the house. I was home, Steve was in Burma, and um, she came to me with a lot of anger and attacking uh, energy. At least that was from my point of view at that time. Her energy felt very cruel to me. It felt like she really wanted to hurt me. She really wanted me to kind of back down and change my mind about that road. I also felt like I needed to protect myself and sometimes maybe to attack back. I didn't do it, of course, but I really felt that urge to strike out, at least, you know, to protect myself, which I did. You know, I had to be very firm and loud at one point and say, stop. That's enough. Can we just talk about this? And in a voice that I can understand you in. So I wasn't like uh, a doormat to what was happening. But in a short, that short period of time when we were speaking with one another, and again, you know, she was all uh, fired up. And really, in retrospect, I can understand, but it was hard to in that moment. But in parts of the moment in the interaction, I could look into my own heart and see how painful it was. First of all, to feel attacked, and then to feel like I wanted to strike back. You know, I felt this like cruelty in myself, not acting it out, not saying it with words, but really feeling it inside, being totally honest with myself. When I felt that in myself, then I had that a connection with her. That connection was, this is how she feels. So it wasn't like compassion first. It was like that empathy of knowing, this is how it feels to be cruel, at least from my own point of view. This is how it feels to be really severed inside severed from my own heart. And with that feeling, I could see on her face how it was for her. It's hard for her. It's hard for me. And when I realized that, there was something that kind of let down, in that guard let down in my heart. And I don't know for sure, because I never know another person's heart, really. But I could see in her demeanor how it softened, and how we could be in a softer way with one another. How that compassion could come from that empathy of really connecting with her, really connecting with her. And acknowledging how she must feel hurt, how she must feel whatever she feels, letting her let me know about it. That, it took a lot more courage to face my own feeling of needing to attack than it took to face hers. One of the descriptions of karuna in the ancient texts is to feel the spontaneous quivering of the heart in response to suffering. Your heart quivers, I found, 
because you feel alive, not dead, to what's going on. You don't feel shut down in apathy or just not caring. Your heart quivers because it cares. It's alive. It wants to do something to help. It wants to take a step. It's trying to find a way to figure out how can I be of help in this situation. When we recognize it in ourselves, it's easier to recognize it in others. Having compassion for those we love and those we care for is easy, easier, of course, But doing it for people we find difficulty with, that's the hard part. In the compassion practice, as in the metta practice and as in the equanimity practice, the difficult person again is towards the end of the the progression of doing those practices because we have to gain momentum practicing where it's easy first and knowing that in ourselves. going to the difficult person more. It requires a real stretch for us to grow and to be in that place where we can open our minds and our hearts to how it is for people uh, we feel that are naturally difficult for us. I like to say that it's difficult for us to offer compassion or metta for them, not that they are the difficult person, because really the difficulties in ourselves. Whenever I find this um, opportunity, I notice that my heart closes down <laughs> the first thing. You know, it, it just doesn't want to go there. When, um, you know, in, in the US, I know there's a few of you from the U.S. here, so we don't usually talk about politics, but I have a particular difficulty with one political group in the U.S. And, um, and so it's really hard when I hear news about it, you know, about what's happening in that particular party. And whenever uh, I see that or hear it or I read about it, I notice right down, right away my heart closes down, either I don't want to hear it, get it out of my sight, or I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, or I just want to, you know, say, oh, you know, they don't know what they're talking about, or whatever. But I make myself look at my, what my heart is doing. I try to make myself look at it, so that, you know, I can go to my edge and realize the places where I could do some work. This is an excerpt from the poem uh, Self-Portrait by David White. He says, It doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. I want to know if you know despair and can see it in others. I want to know if you're prepared to live in in the world with its harsh need to change you. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living, falling toward the center of your longing. I want to know if you're willing to live day by day with the consequences of love. 
And this is the caring part of compassion, the part that cares enough to connect, to connect with the edges of yourself or the other party or the other person. The near enemy of compassion or karuna is despair. It's an unhealthy kind of grief. You know, the kind of grief that goes on and on and on. It's like it's so habitual that it's kind of like a silent attachment, an unconscious attachment. There is a healthy kind of grief that we go through because of loss, when we go through the sadness and the anger and all of that. But it's moving. It keeps moving, and there's letting go all through the process. But this despair is an unhealthy kind of grief. And then there's pity also for oneself. This is uh, another one of the manifestations of the near enemy of karuna. It's called the near enemy because it can seem near to or the same as compassion because of its softness. But it's too soft. It's like so soft that we collapse inside. We're too weak to really face what needs to be faced with that courage. It's more like drowning or lost in pity for others or for ourselves. When this is happening, there's no clarity, there's no wisdom. And if we want to help, we really can't because we're not in a strong place. We might help, but it's not with the best help we can give. It's coming from more of a place of weakness. So with that state of mind, we're so bogged down in painful conditions in ourselves, in pity or despair for the world or for ourselves in the world, that we can't really do anything to lift ourselves out of it. It's like the story I told earlier, maybe it was in the Brahma Vihara practice, where someone is drowning or kind of sinking in quicksand, and we try to help, but we jump in with them, and so we can't really help. We're kind of um, getting sucked in ourselves. Just remembering the time when my eldest daughter was going through a bout of cancer, and she's, she's over at seven years now, and so basically I think she's medically okay. You never know, though. But when she went through her surgery in the hospital, she was having a lot of pain, and uh, the medication was not coming soon enough or in the right amount or something. And so she was on her bed in front of me, and I was standing next to the wall facing her. And she was saying, Mom, I can't stand it anymore. You've really got to help. The nurse isn't coming. You've got to go out and get the nurse and really help me. And I just saw her in that kind of agony and pain. And she was still kind of, um, you know, so vulnerable physically. And thoughts were going through my mind that, gee, I could lose this this daughter of mine. Of course, you know, it wasn't really true, but those, that fear goes through a mother's heart. So I was standing, looking at all of this and her, and looking at my own heart and standing against the wall and just 
felt myself slinking down that wall like the quicksand. And my, my daughter, who's a very strong woman, said to me, Mom, don't go there. I need you. <laughs> Get up. You know, go out and call the nurse. <laughs> you can do it, Mom. So, you know, I realized that I was just really sinking in despair and pity for her, pity for me about the whole situation. So that's what that can do, that near enemy. It makes us weak. We're more collapsing. There can be such a deep pattern of it. Another thing about this is there can be such a deep pattern of it that we get so bogged down in those deep patterns and we're blind to them as patterns in our lives. The pity, the despair, the kind of feeling, ongoing feeling of grieving that never seems to end. It leads us into a kind of identification with it, being identified with our wounds, being identified with the hard bits of our life, being identified with our fear or whatever it is. And um, it's what Caroline Miss talks about, leading into life with our wounds. It's like that's our identity. That's kind of how we present ourselves in life as a wounded person. As William Stafford says in a poem, this is about woundedness, he says, they turn into pearls. They take on a luster. They accumulate as decorations or badges. We become identified with the pain and build all those moments into a me, into a mine, into a who I am. I remember one time um, riding in a car with Manindraji, one of our teachers, and I was driving the car. And it was shortly after I met him, and uh, about a year or two after I met him. And at that time, I was a single parent of three children, and um, I just had left a very difficult life in the Philippines a few years before that. And I was still carrying around my woundedness like a badge, you know, and so identified with it. In retrospect, I could say that truthfully, but at the time, it was really hard to see that going on. And so I was telling Manindraji for the umpteenth time about, oh, this is how hard my life was, and this is, these are the scars that I have because of that life, and on and on and on. And just like a part of him is a, a bit of a Zen master, he just like took out that sword and gave it to me. <laughs> and he said, he was really tired of my telling him about this story, you know? <laughs> so I, I was like sinking in my seat, you know, out of kind of shame and embarrassment and saying, oh, I need to hear this. Okay, tell me again. But then I was like, oh, please stop. He was saying, the past is dead and gone. The future has not yet been born. Your future depends on this moment. How you respond to what happened to you in the past will make your future, and that will become your present moment. 
and from there you can live. How are you relating to the past? And so it, it really turned, it, it stopped me in my tracks. And from that moment on, it was like I really made a stronger effort, a stronger effort to just let it go, let it go, let it go. He would often say to me when I would go in for uh, interview, the words were very simply, nothing much more than let go, let go, let go. That's it. Ring the bell, take your bows, leave. That's about all he would say. I really appreciate that straightforwardness. Because without it, I might still be complaining about my past, identified with all those wounds, shining them up, wearing them around my life. As we experience the vividness of an unfiltered life here on retreat, facing reality with an open heart, we'll come across cruelty, striking out with what is difficult to bear. Striking out with aversion, bitterness, resentment, blame. You know, in those moments when I would tell Manindra, I would blame my life in the Philippines. I would blame persons and situations averting my attention to what was going on in here. Can we incline the mind and heart to a gentle moment of acceptance of what's going on in here? This is what compassion helps us to do. And indeed, in the equanimity practice, I'm trying to bring about a measure of compassion in just the way you can present it to yourselves not just a dry, like, this is how it is, but uh, understanding of equanimity filled with compassion for yourself, for that other person, for the situation. So a compassion phrase is, may I open to this pain with gentleness and care. Because those, that compassion phrase acknowledges the pain whatever it is. It uses the word suffering or pain or whatever it is, the painful experience. It actually says that in the phrase. May I open to this pain or may I let go of this pain? May I connect with this pain with gentleness, with care? Gentle. Soft. I remember, again, it was going down that same hill. I was driving the car, and my daughter was in the car. She was um, in her teens, and she's, uh, she's the only one of the four children because she was raised by Steve and myself, um, and Steve's stepdaughter and my daughter that calls herself a Buddhist. So she's, she's gone to a couple of retreats, and. Sometimes she's attended, uh, gone to retreats that I've taught, and she's, she kind of is nearby. She comes and sits in the room sometimes when I treat, uh, teach retreats uh, in the islands where we live. So she hears, you know, she hears things, and she kind of has grown up that way. So one day I was driving down, and I was in a hurry trying to get her somewhere, and there were a lot of things happening in my life 
you know, and I was a, a bit in a not, it was not a good moment for me inside. And so I was noticing the people cutting in and saying, oh, I've got so much to do and all of that. And she says, Mom, you notice what's going on inside of you? And I said, okay, what? And she said, are you noticing aversion? <laughs> and I said, no, but okay, now I do. And she said, Mom, soft mental note, aversion, aversion. She reminded me, you know. That's the way sometimes we have offered it. Soft, gentle note, aversion, aversion, whatever it is, softly noted. So I remember her teaching a lot. It really helps me. We'll come across despair and overwhelming, overwhelming grief, pity, because of this struggle of life. Life is like this. We live in this world of complexity, chaos, confusion, delusion. There's attachment and there's aversion to no end. This is how it is. It's important to open to that with compassion and equanimity. If we're overwhelmed in it, with any part of it, whether you're here on retreat or at home, it's helpful to give yourself just some space to be with it. Sometimes, just in, uh, in places at home, places that I have to deal with, I have a life just like yours. It may be that, you know, it seems like we float in on some kind of a cloud. And uh, as one of our elder uh, teachers says, Ruth Dennison, we're not licking the honey pot just because we're up here. It's, it's also a challenging life. Uh, we may not have a nine to five job but we have a five to nine job, you know, getting up early, going to bed later, and just really putting forth a lot, as all of you do in your life. So this is the life we live in. Why not have a little softness and compassion for it? It's the least we could do in this world. So sometimes when I'm in my own world doing what I need to do, I just take a breath and just let everything in the out-breath breathe itself out for a moment and just say, just stay there for a moment and just feel what it feels to feel the body, to place my hands over my heart and just feel that moment of a heart beating. A simple thing just like that can give you some space to just bring in some care for yourself. So karuna, the quivering of the heart in response to pain, within the struggle to feel alive, that we can do something about it. We don't have to just say, you know, it's too hard and not make the effort. It takes effort to, to respond. 
But if you haven't noticed yet, a lot of our effort, um, a lot of the energy we expend in life is keeping closed down. We use a lot of energy to keep our hearts closed down. We use a lot of energy to be, you know, obstinate or lazy to not do the practice. We use a lot of effort to find ways to, you know, have excuses and do something else, divert our attention and put our attention in an unwholesome way someplace else. It takes more energy to do that than to just do the practice. To know the kindness of compassion helps us to know life as it really is, the true nature of life, the reality that we live in, to open to the Four Noble Truths. If we didn't have compassion, we really wouldn't be able to open to the Four Noble Truths in the best way possible. Compassion's really important. There are times in my own role as a a teacher, a guide, a spiritual friend, when people have come to me in practice because they've had tears, but not tears of uh, sort of grief or um, happiness. It's more on the side of happiness, but tears of relief because they were able to open to something that they thought they could never open to some fear about life or about how it is for them inside, some fear about their vulnerability, fear about their children or about their grandchildren, about parents, fear about dying, aversion, attachment, able to open to something really, really difficult, the kind of tears of relief that they were able to do that. To be able to feel pain and just face it with an open heart. So this is all about compassion. Many different words, different ways that you can look at it. And as um, our teachers tell us, you know, we can only give you examples and show you the way and tell you some of the teachings of the Buddha and the Dharma, and maybe you will find the way for yourself. It's really up to you to do that. So I have a choice of two things to end with. Let's see. This is from Dana Falds, she's a yoga teacher, and she writes some really beautiful poems. She's not um, really that famous, but I find her poems very down-to-earth, very connecting. So this is called Let It Go. Let go of the ways you thought life would unfold, the holding of plans or dreams or expectations. Let it all go. Save your strength to swim with the tide. The choice to fight what is here before you now 
will only result in struggle, fear, and desperate attempts to flee from the very energy you long for. Let go. Let it all go and flow with the grace that washes through your days. Whether you receive it gently or with all your quills raised to defend against invaders. Take this on faith. The mind may never find the explanations that it seeks, but you will move forward nonetheless. Let go, and the wave's crest will carry you to unknown shores, beyond your wildest dreams or destinations. Let it all go and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. So let's sit for a moment and let the words go. (laughs) 